describes what we're trying to do here every single Sunday. No matter what you're coming in with, no matter what your week's been like, no matter what your morning has been like, for you to be able to come in here and have the distractions kind of pushed to the side, for you to be able to actually encounter God, be able to actually feel His presence. Man, I hope, I hope uh, that's what's happened here. Uh, pray with me. Jesus, uh, thank you so, so much for being here. Even in the midst of, of crazy, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of uh, just apathy sometimes, Lord, you're always here. And I just pray for this morning, Lord, that uh, as we open up your word, that our hearts would be open as well, and that we would be drawn to taking a step closer to you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Thank you, worship team. You guys are awesome. Thank you, G-Kids, for the sugar and caffeine. Amen. All right? That's nice. It's always nice to have a little boost on. All right. I'm going to need some help controlling this morning, gentlemen. Thank you. All right. How many of you in your life uh, have ever TP'd a house? Raise your hand if you've done this. Okay. I figured we'd have a bunch of juvenile delinquents. Uh, so, in high school, TPing people's houses was kind of me and my friends' thing. Uh, I've, I've TPed more houses than I can even, I can't count how many I've done. So, some of you are like, I've done it like once or twice. I have no idea how many times I've done it. And we would do people we knew. We would put them on repeat. We would do people we didn't know. And we, would, we had one house that we picked on repeatedly. I don't, I don't know the people, but for the four years I was in high school, I cannot tell you how many times we TPed these poor people. Um, so, but for us, listen, see, we were artists, okay? I don't think you understand. It, it wasn't about mild vandalism for us. The, the front yard was the canvas and the toilet paper was the medium for us, okay? So, and, and we were really creative, so um, we needed to express ourselves and sometimes toilet paper wasn't enough. So just to give you an example, we would spend hours shredding newspapers and putting them in really big trash bags and we would use that to cover the front yard and have toilet paper in the air so we could transform a yard from summer to winter in just one night, okay? It was beautiful. <laughs> Um, one time we spent weeks collecting uh, napkins from various fast food places, filled trash bags full of random napkins. Just an added touch. If you're an artist, you get it, right? You get it. It's just a little <laughs> difference. Um, we collected a bunch of sporks at one point from Taco Bell, of course, because where else would you get sporks? And we put them in the yard all over the place. Not plastic forks, not plastic spoons, sporks. Again, just the little touches that are so important. One time we got seasonal. And we bought a whole bunch of Easter grass, you know, the stuff that goes in the uh, bottom of the baskets, and we just, we transformed, was, this is the people we didn't even know. We just, first, we had one time, and you know what, I think we did her a favor, because it was seasonal. Now, she didn't have to decorate her front yard anymore. Um, but the best thing we ever did is, instead of toilet paper, we use yarn. Yarn. We yarned them instead of toilet papered them, okay? And it works better than you would think. Uh, you pull, like, there's a middle string right out of the middle, and then you can just kind of throw it like a grenade, and it was beautiful. It was a thing, it was our masterpiece, okay? Um, probably really difficult to clean up, and I hope that the statute of limitations has passed because I feel like I'm confessing right now. That's just, this is little vandalism, right? Um, but every uh, morning after, we would drive by and admire our work, and I can't tell you 
how thankful I am that smartphones did not exist <laughs> at the time when I was in high school. I feel like I would have definitely gotten in trouble. Um, so we did all kinds of silly, stupid stuff like that in high school. We weren't like stupid, stupid. We were silly, stupid, just so you know. Um, and we had this thing that we would say to each other um, if we were about to do something silly, stupid, and one of us was hesitating, if one of us didn't want to do it, uh, we had this automatic line. Uh, we would say to each other, you won't do it. That's all we had to say. You won't do it. And it, 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 essentially, that was the laying down of the gauntlet. That was the high school version of a triple dog dare. And you, ought to, you had to do whatever it is they were saying. You wouldn't do just to prove them wrong. Uh, so uh, basically, it was a way to manipulate and pressure each other into doing stupid things. So I guess what I'm trying to describe is we had this culture of conformity with me and my friends. Like, if you didn't do the crazy, stupid thing that we were all planning to do, you were going to get mocked, you were going to get ridiculed, you were even going to get shamed into participating. Uh, and, you know, I was back in high school, so I was longer than I care to admit how, how long that was um, in my past. And I look back on it now and I think, man, how silly it is, is it to, like, cave to ridicule, to cave to shame? It seems absurd that I would allow silly pressure to conform me and convince me to do these stupid things. But you know what's weird? I think our society right now, our culture, like the grown-up part, not the high school part, but the grown-up part, kind of operates the same way. Like we live in a little bit of a culture of conformity, don't we? Where, where if you don't conform, uh, you, you do get shamed a little bit, right? You, you might not get openly mocked and ridiculed like high school, but it has the same effect. There's the same pressure to conform, to live in a certain way, to think in a certain way. You know, like pressure from friends to, to live a certain kind of lifestyle. You know, your house should look this way, your car should look this way, you should have this kind of vacation, this kind of decor in your home. You, you feel that pressure. Uh, pressure from social media to think a certain way, right? Well, really one of two ways, either red or blue, right? You, you get pressured, you get pushed in one of two directions. Pressure from coworkers to be lazy or vulgar or unethical. You feel that pressure. Pressure from, I don't know, fellow soccer moms to talk about things you know you shouldn't and obsess about things you know you shouldn't. Pressure from every advertising company on the earth that you need something that you really don't need, but they're trying to convince you that you do need it and they're putting pressure on you. Pressure from every which direction. We feel it now to conform us to think and live in such a way that is different from the way that God wants us to think and the way that God wants us to live. So how should we respond to this? There's, there's pressure. You kind of just feel this pressure to, to be a certain kind of person. How should we respond to that? How should we respond when we're pressured and shamed like away from God's will in our lives? How should we respond when culture kind of comes up and pushes us in the chest and says, live this way? What should we do? So Daniel is like the perfect example of this um, if we could only all respond the way Daniel responds. So uh, real quick, just a little backstory here. If you weren't here last week, um, Jerusalem is destroyed and Daniel is taken captive into a kingdom called Babylon. And uh, he makes this 900-mile walk from his destroyed home to Babylon, and it's a, we pointed out last week, it's the biggest miracle in the book that somehow he ends up making this walk, walking away from his destroyed life and ending up stronger on the other side of this walk. He's actually closer to God after his life is turned upside down, and he walks into Babylon, 
you know, shoulders back, head up, ready to serve his God right out the gate after this walk. So there's this miracle that takes place and we're gonna pick up the story as he kind of gets his feet wet in this kingdom. So uh, Daniel 1 verse 3 then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. So Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon, wants uh, to bring a, a group of young men into his uh, kingdom to, to serve him and to, to you know, work in the royal palace. So uh, verse 4, he, he unfolds more of his plan here. Select only strong and healthy, good-looking young men. Uh, He's going to take the cream of the crop. Make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning. They're gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and they're suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. So only the top of the top of the top are chosen to kind of come into this program. And you can kind of see he's got a plan here, right? It's, this is, uh, he's going to train them up. This is kind of an indoctrination plan, right? Teach them the ways of Babylon. These boys know the way of Jerusalem, and that's fine. They're good there, but we need to now take them, kind of uproot them from Jerusalem and put them in Babylon and teach them the, uh, the, our ways here. Uh, he un- unfolds more of his plan. Verse 5, the king assigned to them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years. Then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen from the tribes of Judah. So Daniel and his three buddies are chosen. uh, Three-year training program. And honestly, if you just back up and look, this is really cool what he just got put into. Um, it's basically a three-year internship that ends in the White House, you know, free food the entire time. Pfft, is there a downside? Like, what is, this is awesome, right? He just got, kind of fell butt backwards into a really cool situation. Um, verse 7, you see a little bit more of this. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was now called Belshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. So they changed their names. Now, you might think, oh, who cares? You know, what, what does it matter what they call them? But um, these names, both the old names and the new names, have deep uh, meaning, deep significance. So if you look at these, their old names, they, they all mean something. And they're all, all these names are meant to kind of root their identity in their relationship with their God, the one true God. So Daniel means God is my judge. That's what the name Daniel means. God is my judge. Hanaiah means that Yahweh has been gracious. Mishael means who is like God. And Ezariah means Yahweh has helped. So all these old names are supposed to kind of point them, root them towards belief in God, living their life according to the way God wants them to live. But the new names, they're all centered around Babylonian religion and Babylonian gods. So Belshazzar means that Bel will protect. Bel was like the principal god in Babylon. Uh, Shadrach means inspired by Aku, who's one of the gods. Uh, Meshach means belonging to Aku. And then Abednego means a servant of Nego. So what they've done here is they're, they're trying to shift something with these boys, aren't they? These new names are designed to pull them from their rooted belief in the one true God. This is not just a name change. This is an attempt to shift their identity. Do you see that? This, and, and, and my opinion, this is a smart move by the Babylonians. Change the name, change the identity, you change the person eventually. So that's their plan. Now we're going to see here in a minute, Daniel's going to interact with this Babylonian indoctrination plan. 
He's got some things he wants to address, but the one thing he doesn't address is this name change. It's interesting. He doesn't seem bothered by by this. He doesn't seem phased by this. It's almost as if Daniel's like, you know what? You can call me whatever you want, but I know who I am. Go ahead. Call me Belsha. I don't don't care. Belsha something or other. I can't even pronounce my own name now. It doesn't matter. Uh, I know who I am. God is my judge is written on my heart. Spirit of Ron Swanson comes over him. I know what I'm about, son. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he knew who he was and he didn't care what they called him. Fine, whatever. That's my new nickname. Cool. I know, I know right here who I am. For you, in your life, if you want to stand out in a culture that pressures you to fit in, you are going to have to know deep down in your soul who you are. That is a prerequisite. If you want to live in a culture that's going to try to pressure you to be something other than what God wants you to be, you're going to have to deep down in your guts know who God created you to be. Right here, your identity. You're going to have to care more about what God says about you than what anyone else says about you. You're going to need the the spirit of Ron Swanson. You're going to have to be able to say that line, I know what I'm about, son. Every room you walk into, you're not going to be thrown by who's in there. You're not going to be thrown by how they're acting because you know who you are, who God created you to be, what God created you to do, and you're not going to be tossed around by people trying to influence who you are. That's part of why I love Daniel. There's this, there's this like quiet security about Daniel. He's not loud. He's not flashy. He's just a man who's confident in his God and confident in who God created him to be. When Daniel walks in a room, he almost just oozes this quiet confidence off of him. So anybody who tries to come in and influence him and change him and tell him, no, you're not this, you're this, it, it just kind of bounces off of him because he's so deeply rooted in this identity that I know who I am, I know whose I am, and, and whatever God says about me is true and whatever y'all say about me isn't. He was convinced right here. And you need that. You need that. So he doesn't address this. Fine, call me what you want. But in verse 8, he addresses one of their other complaints. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. So Daniel says, call me what you want, but I'm not going to eat that. Which is crazy. If you've never read this story, you're like, wait, what? That was literally the best perk of the job. What are you doing, Daniel? Like, dude, you get this three-year internship, you get free food. Like, what are you complaining about? Like, and, and this is the king's kitchen. The king's kitchen. This is probably the best food on the planet. What are you doing, Daniel? Why would you say no to this? So there's two likely reasons. Number one, uh, the food that is at the king's table is probably sacrificed to uh, idols, probably sacrificed to the gods that they're renaming them for. So there's these uh, religious ceremonies and stuff that are they're, uh, a part of uh, how they would go about eating. So Daniel is basically making the statement that I don't want any part of that. I don't want any part of that. that uh, whatever you're doing to worship your gods, you know, that, that's fine, but I'm, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to associate myself with that. And then secondly, uh, likely the food at this table was not kosher, right? So God had given the Israelites 
uh, specific dietary laws. Hey, eat this, don't eat this, eat this, don't eat this. And likely at the table, there was a lot of the stuff that they were not supposed to eat. Um, So what's he going to do? He's determined not to defile himself by eating this food. He's resolved. He's decided inside of his heart, I'm not doing that. I know who I am. I know who I am. You call me what you want, but I'm not going to do that because, I'm, because of my identity is rooted in, in who God says I am. I can't participate in that because that doesn't really line up with who I know myself to be. I'm not going to do that. So he's so rooted in his identity, he couldn't participate in that. So what, what do you do? What do you do? Culture now is telling him, do this. And Daniel's like, hold up. No. What's the next step? Besides deciding. What's after that? So like, if we just looked at what Christians normally do, can we do that for a minute? Just no, not us. Other Christians, okay? Not us. But, but, but other Christians, what they would do, step one, if you're put in this situation, is you definitely need to, like, out the gate, once you decide, hey, culture's trying to get me to do something I don't want to do, I totally disagree with this, step one, post something snarky on Facebook, right? That's got to be the thing, right? You got to put them on blast, on social media, whatever you can, you got to throw it up there, right? Nice try, King Neb. I'm not eating that food. Hashtag godless. Hashtag not my king. Hashtag make Jerusalem great again. Boom, got you both. Both in one joke. That's, I get bonus points for that. When culture tries to pressure us, we tend to become social media warriors. I don't know what it is. There's something about, I mean, I will admit, there's something viscerally satisfying about putting somebody on blast on Facebook, isn't there? So that's, that's our number one thing that we go to. Number two, what should Daniel do? I don't know, call for a boycott of the king's table, right? Hit him where it hurts. Uh, organize. Form a picket line. Get loud. Get other people on your team, right? And then step number three would just be gen- in general outrage. Maybe outrage isn't really a step. It's just supposed to kind of cover the whole thing. There should be yelling involved somewhere, right? If he's not yelling, he's doing something wrong. He needs to be red-faced and ticked off. Otherwise, he doesn't really care. Otherwise, he's not really passionate about this, right? Right? So, so Daniel could go that route. And that's kind of the way most Christians go these days, right? We, we go to social media. We go to the, the boycott thing. We go to the, the angry thing. We just go outraged. That's one path that you could choose. That's the path Daniel could go. Um, and... It does seem to be the only play we many Christians know these days. So can I ask a question? How's that working for us? How's, how's outrage working for us? Is, is it changing things? Is our social media crusades taking territory? Is it? Let me ask this. Are people influenced by outrage? Do you know what influence is? Christian. What happens when you go outraged? Does somebody on the other side go, they're really angry. I bet that, maybe I should listen. <laughs> is, that, is that the way you respond when they go outraged? Whoever they is? Or, or is it more likely that when you go level 10 angry, they come right back level 11 angry? Isn't it more likely that, that outrage doesn't really influence? Outrage just seems to breed more outrage? I don't know that outrage influences. So he could go that route. He could go outrage. He could go the opposite direction, though. 
And the opposite direction for Daniel at this point would be, well, um, you know, if society says it's okay, <laughs> then maybe it's okay, right? He could, he could go that route as well. Maybe those commands that God gave way back when, maybe they were only meant for back then. He could, he could make that same kind of argument, right? Times have changed. This is Babylon 600 BC after all, right? This is modern day. You know, we're not talking like 1300 BC back when Moses was on Mount Sinai, you know? We're advanced now, right? That's the olden days back then. Society has grown. We know so much more now. Maybe those laws that God gave don't really apply to us now. He could go that route too, right? So he's got two paths before him. He's being pressured to do something that he believes God doesn't want him to do. He could go outrage or he could go, you know what? Maybe God changed his mind. Which one? So let's look at it. The rest of verse eight into verse nine. He asked the chief of staff. He asked the chief of staff, for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now, God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. What now? You mean yelled, right? That's, that's a misprint. He yelled at the chief of staff, right? No, he asked. He asked. And so not only does he ask, look at verse 9. Verse 9 is crazy. This godless, idol-worshiping heathen respects Daniel, and he likes him. That's crazy. So this isn't the path of outrage, and this isn't the path of just going along with it. This is something else entirely, isn't it? This is a third one. So instead of yelling, instead of making demands, he starts a dialogue. He leads with questions. He wants to know where this guy's at. He leads with questions rather than making statements. And on top of that, that's important. Dialogue's important. Asking questions rather than making statements is important. If you want to influence somebody. If you just want to tell them what you think, that's fine. But if you really want to influence somebody, asking questions is so much better than making statements. Because you'll learn where they're they're at. But not only that, Daniel has lived his life in such a way that this guy who does not share his faith at all respects him and likes him. Daniel's a man of principle, and he's a nice guy. That's rare these days, isn't it? <laughs> Usually you're one or the other. Either you're a man of principle, but you're kind of a jerk, or you're a nice guy and you don't really stand for anything. But Daniel's both. And this guy, who again, is not, he's not a Christian, he doesn't fear God, he doesn't worship the God that Daniel worships, but this guy's like, you know what? I respect Daniel, and I even like him. So here's how this guy responds. Verse 10. I'm afraid of my lord the king. He's afraid, he's afraid of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. So, so that's a legitimate concern, right? Can we all say if, if your head might get cut off, that's something you should at least like, take a look at, you know, address in your life. The risk of possible beheading. Um, so this guy, listen, look, back up and look at the situation. So Daniel's being pressured to live a certain way, but so's this guy. There's, there's like dominoes falling down the hill here. King Nebuchadnezzar is putting pressure to conform on this guy. <laughs> pretty, pretty steep pressure, right? I will cut your head off if you do not do this thing. So the pressure goes from King Nebuchadnezzar down to this guy who then now is pressuring Daniel. So look at this. This is crazy. This is crazy. This guy is is forcing Daniel to do something that Daniel should not do. He's forcing Daniel to sin, so to speak. 
from the Christian perspective, this guy is like the bad guy of the story, right? But get this. He's a human. He's just, he's a person. That's crazy, isn't it? He's not just a label. He's not just the enemy. He's not just a Babylonian. He's not just the boss, the guy in charge. He's, he's human. He has a story. He, he has fears and pains in his life. He's just a regular guy. He might be wrong, but he's got like valid reasons for it, right? That need addressed. You can't just yell at him. <laughs> Yelling at him is not going to take this away at all. It's not going to work for him. So Daniel does the craziest thing. He treats his enemy like a human. He treats someone with opposing views with compassion and respect. <laughs> That's crazy. Here's what he does, verse 11. Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed to the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. Please. Daniel said, at the end of the 10 days, see how, how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. Whew. So what's Daniel say here? Daniel says, hey, um, hear you, I hear you. How about this? Rather than just tell you, can I show you? Can I show you? He wants to be an example rather than yell about it. He, he seems to care that this guy might get his head chopped off. He actually, he actually empathizes with the guy. Like, dude, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, man, I wouldn't want to be there either. So, so instead of getting out picket signs, instead of starting the chant, we won't eat, we won't eat, instead of doing any of that, he reasons with the guy. Man, that's a crazy idea, isn't it? So listen, this is so, so, so important. If you want to influence the culture that you live in, if you want to influence the people in your life, first thing, man, you need to lead with love. You need to lead with love. And what I mean by lead with love is that's the first thing out the gate. You start with it. That's your plan. Step one, I'm going to love first. I'm going to lead with that. Because guess what? I mean, D David, David cared about this guy. He listened to this guy. He had a relationship with this guy. You could even say, man, I think David like genuinely loved this guy, even though the guy was his enemy. See, outrage doesn't influence. Love does. Yelling doesn't influence. <laughs> Ask my seven-year-old son. Yelling does not influence. Yelling will get him to do what I need him to do, but it doesn't really influence. Dialogue does. Asking questions. Think about this. Would Daniel have known that this guy was afraid of getting his head cut off had he just led with statements? Had he just said, dude, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. God doesn't want me to do it. I'm not going to do it. Would he ever have found out that, hey, this guy actually had a deep, legitimate fear of, of repercussions if he didn't force Daniel to do this? Would he have ever found out? No, right? So think about this. The people in your life, the, the people who are pressuring you to do things, the, 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 those enemies of Christianity out there, how will you ever know where they're coming from if you don't ask questions, if you don't want to know more about them and show genuine concern and love for them first? Have the dialogue. 
Have the conversation. Then you'll actually have somewhere to stand when you actually start speaking to them rather than just, I'm going to go outrage and then they go outrage and then we just meet each other at the top and bounce off. You'll find some stuff out. And Daniel addresses that. So the first thing you do is lead with love. The second thing you do is you speak truth with grace. Speak truth with grace. You need to lead with love because love opens the door. Love gets you to the table of of even being able to talk to somebody. But then you need to speak truth. Once you're at the table, once you've built a relationship with someone, once you've shown them that you genuinely care about them and love them, then you speak truth. You do stand for what's right. But you do it with grace. How you do it is just as important as the fact that you are doing it. Both of these are vital if you want to influence the people in your life. You lead with love and then you speak the truth with grace. One of the most uh, important Bible verses in the Bible is John 1.14. And this is describing Jesus here. The word, that's Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, glory from the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. So when Jesus came down to earth, he didn't come down like guns loaded with truth bullets, right? Like just mowing down crowds of people with just truth everywhere, right? He also didn't come down Saying, ah, however you're living is cool. Whatever. I love you. I love you all. I love you all. I love you all. He didn't do that either. Jesus held this tension, right, of grace and truth. He loves people. He treats people with dignity and respect. He doesn't treat people like positions to be destroyed. And he tells them, hey, this is how you should live. This is truth. This is, this is the way things are. This is how my father created the world. Both. Treats people like humans who have real stories and real pains and he tells them what they need to hear. Grace, truth. So let me ask you, we tend to, in our personalities almost, uh, lean one way or the other. You either, you're more of a truth person or you're more of a grace person, likely. Uh, so, so which one do you lean towards? Which one comes easier for you? Which one, if you're caught off guard, it's the one you go to? Which one is it? Are you a truth person? When you see something you disagree with, do you tend to want to attack it? Teeth, bared, claws out. Is that you? If, you're, if you lean more truth and you struggle to give people grace, maybe what you need to do is you just need to take a season where you're just quiet. Maybe you just need to be, maybe you need to really make an effort to listen. To listen. Ask questions rather than making statements. Could you, could you have a season of your life where you're just like, you know what, I'm going to, rather than making a bunch of statements, I'm going to ask a lot of questions for this season. Put your hand over your mouth, put your hand over your keyboard and listen. Maybe you need to remember that even your worst enemy on this planet is a human. They have a story. They, they, they have pains. They have reasons for thinking the way they think, even if they're wrong. They still have a story. And, and they are fiercely, fiercely loved by God. Do you realize that? Your worst enemy on this planet, God loves them fiercely, fiercely. So if you're leaning towards truth, man, you got to remind yourself of that. And maybe you need to take some time and meditate on the, what, what the word influence actually means. 
how, how influence actually comes about, how it's exerted. Maybe you need to preach to yourself, lead with love, lead with love, lead with love, lead, lead with love. You will not ever, they're, they're not gonna hear it if you just go straight to truth. You're gonna have to lead with love in order to get to truth, if that's you. So, but, but maybe that's not you. Maybe, maybe that's the truth. People over there, they're a little crazy. They're kind of angry all the time. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you're more of a grace person. You kind of just go with the flow. You love people. You're really good at that. Uh, but you don't really stand for truth. You're nice, but you allow culture, you allow like the, the atmosphere in the room to change you and the way you act and the way you uh, interact with the world. What you need to remember if you're more of a gr- grace person is that love without truth actually isn't very loving at all. It isn't. Just, just loving people without any truth is not very loving at all. And that God, he created the world to live in, to, to, to work in a certain way. And the laws that God gave us in his word are not just arbitrary. He didn't, you know, how about don't do this. He, he didn't just do that. He, the, the laws in the Bible are an invitation for us to live in harmony with the way he created the world. It's his grand design. He, he's, he's the one who made this thing. And he's like, hey, if you live this way, it's best. Hey, if you live this way, it, 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 your, it, your life will be overall better if you do what I'm telling you to do here. That's true. There's objective truth. And sometimes you need to remember, if you're a grace person, sometimes you need to remember the most loving thing you can do is have the guts to tell somebody the truth sometimes. You gotta be careful how you do it. And I know for some of you, that is a terrifying idea. You get anxiety just beginning to think about that. But it is the most loving thing you can do is tell somebody, hey, this is what you're doing and this is what you should be doing. And by the way, no matter where you fall on the spectrum of truth and grace, the gospel that we believe, Christians, the gospel that we believe, if, if you're a Christian, perfectly holds this tension. You know that? We believe that, hey, you're a sinner and you need a savior. That's truth, right? Smack in the face. And Jesus loves you and died for those sins. Grace. Truth, grace. Grace, truth. Both are true. And we, we need to be able to, as Christians, hold that tension. We, we shouldn't be swaying one way or the other. We need to be able to have one hand on one and one hand on the other. We have to. And, and by the way, if you're not a Christian, maybe part of the reason you struggle with Christianity is because you tend to look at this from one perspective or the other. But they're both true. God says, man, you're, you're a sinner. You're messed up. You probably know that already, I'm guessing. You say it like, I'm, I'm, well, I'm not perfect. You say stuff like that. Or maybe deep down inside, you just know you're, you're really messed up. But you also need to know that the God of the universe sent his son to die on the cross and take all your sin onto himself so that you now are free. You can have an unbroken relationship with God by putting your trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross. Both are true. You, you need both aspects of Christianity. So man, if you've never done that before, if you've never put your faith, your trust in Jesus, what are you waiting for? You can be free. He paid for everything. Put your faith, put your trust in him and accept that relationship. Both are needed, grace and truth. You're a sinner and there is a savior who died for you and loves you fiercely, both. Um, 
Let me end with this. I have this dream, I guess, vision, something. Nebulous and kind of foggy. You guys tell it's foggy in here? It's because of, of the fog. I want, uh, I want this church, I want Mosaic to be uh, hard for people to figure out. And like what I mean by that is like, <laughs> obviously we're a contemporary church, whatever that word means, but our beliefs are ancient. Like the best, they're both true, Right? Yeah, Mosaic is a newer name for a church, and every time I tell somebody, like, what is it again? What, what religion is that? I mean, shut up. <laughs> so, yeah, we have a new name, and, and we don't even always say the word church with it. Sometimes we just say Mosaic. But our faith reaches back thousands of years. We're rooted in a biblical history that goes back for, for millennia. They're both true. Yeah, we have fog in here on Sunday mornings, but we're actually old school when it comes to our principles and the way we live. Yeah, we have loud music and the lights move around, but we have, man, like a radical faith in our God, and we just live differently than the rest of culture. We may love people right where they are, every single person who comes in here. We're not going to look sideways at anybody. We're not even going to really notice that they're different, actually, but we're also going to speak truth. Wouldn't that be crazy? To be a church where both of those things are true, where somebody would walk in and go, man, I thought you were going to be this, but actually you're not really fully that. You're also this too. Like, you, you're, yeah, I just can't figure you out. A church with strong convictions, but we're not jerks about it. A church that leads with love, but stands for truth. A church that promotes dialogue and conversations rather than just yelling all the time. Doesn't the world need a church like that? <laughs> we could be it, you know, we could. We could. We, we can be the ones, and it starts, with, it starts with you. If you can be that kind of a person who, who holds on to both, who says, you know what, I'm going to lead with love, I'm going to speak the truth with grace. I'm going to do both. I'm going to hold fast to my convictions. I'm going to believe what God's word says, but man, I'm going to love people. I'm going to lead with that love. We could, we could do it. We could be a, a church that nobody can figure out. They'll look at us on the surface and think we're one thing, but once they get in, they're going to be like, whoa, it's like way like deeper than I thought it was. And the fog does something to us. <laughs> we could be like Daniel. You could be like Daniel. You could. And I pray that you, you are. I pray that as you live this week, whether it's at home or at work or with your friends, that you're able to start to be that person that God wants you to be, that you would have that identity rooted deep down in your soul. You know who you are and that you would be able to live from that, free of all that pressure and to be able to hold to grace, to hold to truth and to present that to the world because that's who Jesus wants you to be. Would you pray with me? Jesus, uh, I thank you so much for Daniel. Uh, just an amazing person, Lord. I, I pray that we would all uh, just be drawn to that. Lord, I pray that, that you would give us like the spirit of Daniel here, Lord. We live in a culture that is so different from the faith that we want to live. Things are not just different, Lord. They're, they're like completely upside down. And, and Lord, we need your wisdom. We need your boldness to be able to live the way you want us to live. I pray for this church, Lord, that we would be uh, 
a confusing church to people. That they would look at us and not know what to do with us. That we would be full of grace and truth. That we would love people and speak your word. That we would do whatever we can to reach people, but be rooted in an ancient faith. Both of those things, Lord. I pray for your spirit with us as we go this week, uh, that we would be like Daniel. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.